Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 153 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be nothing less than the miraculous catch episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that uh, when you turn to the Bible, the Gospel of John, chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, includes the narrative of the miraculous catch of fish, numbering 153. There you go, folks, with a little bit of Bible trivia. I, of course, am Matt, and coming to us all the way from heathenistic L.A., our resident Sony heathen. Tim! And I kind of wish that is how you normally say Bible. The Bible! Every time. (laughs) I would be more into it if I was holding a Bible and not just a Bible. Maybe I can start the... uh, uh, I could start a religion, the Holy Sepulcher of the Bible! (laughs) What's the the doctor, the scientist's name in uh, The Simpsons? The one who always, like... He talks kind of like Laban, that guy or whatever. I don't know. Yeah, well, kind of. Yeah, the Jerry Lewis yeah. face-off guy. Well, yeah, Laban. He says all sorts of weird phrases and stuff. Yeah, I don't know. Bible? I know Hank Azaria. Yeah. I know, I know Hank Azaria voices him, but that's about it. Who does Hank Azaria not voice? It seems like, I think he has the record of the, number, the most number of characters that he voices. Harry Shearer has the most, I think. Does he really, huh? Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good thing he decided to come back and stay on the show, for those of you who listen to I, it or I watch it. I haven't watched Simpsons in like 20 years. <laughs> I still enjoy it. I still tune in and watch it. Well, not tune in. Oh. I stream it. But Somebody's got to. Yeah, that, that's true. That's true. I've been getting into the Rick and Morty thing myself. Really? Yeah. Uh, what season are you on? First or second? First. Ooh, okay. How are your pubes doing? <laughs> how is how is Curly and and and, Le- and Larry um, doing? I have no idea what that is. If you want to do that on fucking other shows and stupid shit, that's fine. I have no idea what that was about or where that came from. It still didn't make sense after last night. So I do not have any idea what the hell that's supposed to be. But I am fine. That's good. More or less. It's just um, hashtag pubes for Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently I'm trending on Twitter along with uh, the Concerned Student 50 shit or something. Concerned Student 50? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. you're up there with Walk with ALS or something. I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. How are you, sir? I'm good. Yeah, the weather outside is chillier and breezier, and there has yet to be El Nino. No sign of El Nino anywhere. Uh, the reigns of El Nino, Damn it. I guess. That little boy, the hell. Say little boy, what the hell? Yeah, that little boy, what the hell? As in a little Clearly. Hispanic child named El Nino? Well, that El Nino means the boy. Oh, I see. Well, look at you, mister, not in Spanish class anymore, but you're throwing out the Espanol translations. Good job. <laughs> That's not a hard one, man. <laughs> well, I took 
Espanol for a hot seven years. Siete años. Cinco, seis, mm. siete. Yeah, siete yes. años. <laughs> Way to count that up there. You know, my five-year-old does that. Does she count or yeah. count? In- she count. She counts it up when she's trying to remember what number it is. She can't just go seven. And she has to go four, five, six, seven. But don't I mean most people do that, right? Like God, three, two, three, four. Mm. Or, or maybe it's it could be in the higher uh, numbers, <laughs> or it's, an, it's entirely possible. in trigonometry. You know, I don't know. What is Maybe. trigonometry? Do you know the definition of trig? Actually, something I wanted to yeah, ask. Yeah, trigonometry. You. It's the math after algebra three four. <laughs> <laughs> it's the math. It's the math that you drop out of. Right. Uh, you 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 do pre algebra, and then you do algebra one two, then you do geometry, then you do algebra three four, then you do trig, and then you do calculus. Yeah, then you fucking take tennis. You don't even geometry's over. Tennis, but you're taking Middle Eastern studies. Mm-hmm. The Middle East, uh, 500 to 1700. Five, what happens within that period? Oh, God, a whole lot. Like, what, is there one <laughs> the, major the event? Byzantine Empire, the birth of Islam, uh, the, the, the Mongol, the Ottomans. It, yeah, there's a, there's a whole lot of things that happen. Now, how do you? How does one give birth to Islam? Like, was the delivery strenuous? And well, was there an epidural? It really place? just depends on it. Depends on how you want to look at it. Um, basically, the Prophet Muhammad. We can't say that. Sure, you just can't show. A no, picture. no, no, no. We, we, We're good. It's, it's 2015, Matt. We cannot say uh, that word. You have to call him uh, Prophet. Mm. I, I, I was under the impression that you can't show pictures, but seeing as that this is an audio podcast, I thought we were covered. 2015. At any rate, he was just a very good um, gleaner of what was popular in the various religions, Zoroastrianism, uh, from classic Judaism, as well as Coptic Christian ideas, and combined that with visions that he had, and thus he came up with islam are they visions of sugar plums dancing and or however that rhyme or story goes no it's yeah it goes it's it's way too complicated to get into here but i mean that that's kind of that that was kind of the birth of that in a nutshell matt the segment ends in a minute i think we can cover all of middle eastern studies between 500 and 1700 within a minute 50 seconds right now (laughs) Um, if there's one word you could use to say to define that entire period of time what would that one word be conquest what would a sentence be (laughs) not using the word conquest it's too there is no there is no sentence that you can you can use without having conquest what would be the title of your dissertation over middle eastern studies why it's necessary to use the term conquest when dealing with the Middle East, circa 500 to 1700. Uh, yeah, this is really lame. I can already feel it. I know, I can feel Satan wanting to pop out and spice things up a bit. but Coming in the air tonight. All right, well, that's cool. So you're doing great, I'm doing great, and I guess we can 
Uh, we don't have any email, so I guess we can just jump right into the news, right? We probably should, yeah. All right, here we go, folks. It's the news! First up from me, I've got a quick pair of stories here, and basically they're really short, which is why I'm going to promote them as a pair of stories. First up from flickeringmyth.com by way of Luke Owen. Universal has pulled Gem and the Holograms from theaters following dismal box office performance. Yes, folks, despite a very meager $5 million budget, Universal uh, has been uh, is pulling a... I can read. Yes, I can do it. Yes, I can read. Universal was putting a lot of promotion and hype behind their big screen adaptation of Gem and the Holograms. But after two very poor weeks at the domestic box office, the studio has now pulled the plug. Yes, the film opened to a sea of negative reviews and a mere 1.3 million from 2,000. 400 screens failing to crack the top 10 its second week was even worse as it dropped 71% to just 387,000 from the same number of screens. Basically, at the end of the day, with a total of $2.08 million to its name, Gem and the Holograms has been removed from the theaters. Um, Apparently, it's still going to be released in the UK and several other European territories, but... um, yeah, that's pretty terrible. Uh, jumping uh, to another short story. Real quick, though, did you hear about Steve Jobs getting pulled as well from 2000 theaters? After it was, it's only been out for like two weeks, I think around the same time as Jim and the Holograms. And mm-hmm. on a $30 million budget, I, it made $15 million its entire theatrical run in two weeks and they were planning on they were forecasting that its opening weekend it would make between 15 and 20 million dollars so yeah it's it's been an interesting time for these two movies definitely (laughs) but yeah uh, from usatoday.com by way of brian alexander we also have chloe grace moritz confirming little mermaid role Yes, Chloe Grace Moritz confirmed Friday that she will star in working title and Universal's live-action version of The Little Mermaid. Please understand that I just said working title and Universal's live-action version of The Little Mermaid. <sighs> um, it, basically, I don't know why. It, it's, it's like this whole pan thing all over again. That we just experienced the $150 million loss that we talked about either last week or the week before. You don't remake Disney properties if you're not Disney. You're just begging for trouble. Begging, begging, begging. Uh, Do you have anything that you would... uh, And that was it. Uh, Do you have anything you would like to throw in on either of these stories, Mr. Tim, sir? I think Pan should have been like a warning sign for them. Like, Okay, what, what can Universal do differently than... Warner Brothers, what they did with Peter Pan. Scrap the project now. That is what they could do differently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it could be good. It's just, I, like, I'm pretty sure... But it's not gonna be. But you never know. What gets me about it is that Disney, I 
think this is true. I mean, they, Disney is rebooting fucking everything. If they're doing Beauty and the Beast, they're doing a live-action version of Little Mermaid, I am sure. If not, they've been considering it probably up until this one fizzles out. Or maybe they're, you know, they're, they're wanting to do it more so now because they know people would rather see a Disney Little Mermaid than a Universal Little Mermaid. I, I don't know. I think the water aspect of the Little Mermaid is really going to throw it for a loop. The thing that Cinderella has going for it and Beauty and the Beast has going for it is that, yes, it's fairy tale, yes, it's fantastical, but they can keep the special effects somewhat practical. They don't have to rely too much on a lot of CGI. And so they can do wonderful things with the sets and the costumes and all that kind of fun stuff. So are they going to like gurgle? With the Little Mermaid, you've got to deal with her being a mermaid. And that that's a lot of money before you even get to her being, are you okay? Yeah, I just fell off my Could chair. you just not believe? Yeah. Could you just not believe what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> that much water? What the fuck? Um, yeah. But so I think that that is really the big hindrance in terms of just automatically greenlighting it. But whatever they they've they've done it. I think what's really funny though is that with the whole Jim and the Holograms thing, it has the um, it has the teaser on it. I think you talked about it last week, right? Sure. Putting teasers at the end of what I either read it or I heard it somewhere. Oh, oh, oh! You mean all the teasers at the end? The the oh, I see what you the, mean. The to get you ready for the sequel. A proposed yeah. sequel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about that last week. It's like, really? <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, the faith they had in the stinger. But, anyway, but what if, what what if it was sir? a, a real-life, a, a true-to-life Little Mermaid movie? Like, what if they're like, God, if, if this was real, if mermaids were real, if Animal Planet got it wrong a couple years ago... <laughs> That's one of my favorite episodes yeah. <laughs> of this show. It really is. That is truly one of my favorite episodes of the show. Yeah. That and our uh, Sector SLS thing, which I saw you link to somebody the other, the other day or something. Yeah, trying to pass uh, it around. Yeah. Culture, you know, uh, you know, uh, culture, uh, give uh, culture people. Give, give people culture, culture. God damn, what? What? Give give people a culture. What the hell's the matter with you? I don't know. We're, I'm trying to culture people. <laughs> I can never interview people on this show. You better get their permission can I, first. Yeah. Can I culture you? Is that like yeah. a. Do you use a swab? Or, I mean. <laughs> um, but yeah, but what if it's a little mermaid where it's real? So whenever they're underwater and they're not gargling water while they're talking, but. <laughs> I, I don't know. It could be. What if it was directed by David Fincher? Maybe, maybe they'll just put him in the water and everybody will just be treading water so it's just from the waist up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. All right, what do you got for us? All right, I'm going to start off with a pair of news as well. First up from Yahoo Movies. This is uh, via Variety. This came out November 4th, 2015. Uh, I guess that would make sense. E.T. screenwriter Melissa Matheson dies at 65. This is written by Pat Saperstein, and it says this, Melissa Matheson, who... Entertainment Tonight? We're covering Entertainment Tonight now? I didn't say Entertainment Tonight. You did. You said E.T. Oh, yes. All right, I'm out. That and El Nino, the little boy, and... You're on on your endgame, Matt. 
I thought I was going to catch you off guard and all these were going to sneak past you, but no. Uh, this is written by Pat Saperstein, Melissa Matheson, who was Oscar nominated for original screenplay for Spielberg's E.T., The Extra Testicle, and also wrote The Black Stallion died Wednesday in Los Angeles after an illness. Her brother Dirk Matheson confirmed she was 65. She recently reunited with Spielberg to write the screenplay for Ronald Dahl's adaption of the BFG, which is in post-production. Matheson, who was married to Harrison Ford from 1983 to 2004, had two children with the actor named Malcolm in Georgia. Matheson also served as associate producer on E.T., the Extra Testicle, which was produced by Kathleen Kennedy, Spielberg, who worked closely with Matheson. Hey, I'm dead serious. I apologize for that. I'm dead serious. Are you saying Extra Testicle? <laughs> because it's extraterrestrial. I know Like, that. you've said it. I know. I purposely. Oh. I mean, it's kind of like a thing, you know, where... Okay, I'm so sorry. I swear to God, I thought you were mispronouncing it, and I did not want to, like, just... Be laughing and jumping in. I thought I, I I apologize. That's why I was I didn't know if we needed to edit it out. I'm sorry. Carry on. I apologize. No, I mean, all this is not being edited out. It's staying in. Fuck. Okay. Well, very good then. God, Matt, you're enjoy your extra testicle. Matt is racist. I'm telling you, folks, with his prophet rant and God, you're so, you're so racist. Spielberg, who worked closely with Matheson on the concept for the film, described her input on a DVD special edition, saying, "Quote." Melissa delivered this 107-page first draft to me, and I read it in about an hour. I was just knocked out. It was a script I was willing to shoot the next day. It was so honest, and Melissa's voice made a direct connection with my heart. End all quotes there, and the article does go on for a bit. So again, that was E.T. screenwriter Melissa Matheson, who passed away at the age of 65. Uh, the second piece of news is something that I find very interesting, and I hope uh, you all as well do as well, or two. Anyways, I, I love hearing about these old movies being found in people's attics or garages or, you know, just like old films that only three copies are are, are, are in existence. However, everybody has thought that they were gone forever. One of Disney's Holy Grail films, entitled Sleigh Bells, has been rediscovered. This is from CNN.com, written by Will Haleburn. And this was, this was published on Wednesday, November 4th. Mickey Mouse is Walt Disney's most popular cartoon character and a staple of almost every childhood in the Western world. But had a business deal gone differently, would Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, the first Disney character ever created, have been the star of Disneyland and present in every toddler's toy collection? A rare and long-lost silent era film, Sleigh Bells from 1928, has just been rediscovered in the British Film Institute, BFI, which stars Oswald, the Disney star who never was. Sleigh Bells was made by Walt Disney and fellow animator Oob Lurks, but the rights to the character Oswald were owned by Universal. Following a contractual agreement, or should I say, following a contractual disagreement, Disney and Lurks stopped making Oswald films and went on to create Mickey Mouse. Quote, There's a good argument to be made that had Walt Disney not fallen out with Universal over contracts, 
He would have gone on to make a hundred more Oswald films and Mickey Mouse may never have been created, end quote. Justin Johnson, an animator programmer at BFI, told CNN, quote, Oswald and Mickey clearly resemble each other in terms of physical characteristics, but even more importantly, their characters have a lot in common. Before Oswald, cartoon characters were pretty generic, without much personality. However, Oswald is clearly a fun and mischievous character, just like Mickey. End all quotes there. So yeah, check it out. Uh, you can watch some of this on the CNN website. Uh, it's only about 46 seconds long, but it's really cool. And I haven't looked if you could actually find it anywhere else online, but there's a possibility that you can. You gotta check it out. It's fun to watch. This is early Disney um, and he kind of ripped himself off while he was giving Universal the big middle finger, which is kind of cool. Uh, again, this is CNN Disney Holy Grail film Sleigh Bells Rediscovered by Will Helpburn. All right. Well, these are going to be the last two pieces of news for me. Uh, they are both Disney related. So that's a nice little segue. Uh, let's see here from FuriousFanboys.com by way of Jeremy Conrad. Uh, let's see here. Lucasfilm shows The Force Awakens to Daniel Fleetwood. Um, yeah, last week, the article starts, we let you know about a Star Wars fan dying of cancer in his dream to see The Force Awakens. And now Lucasfilm has shown the movie to Daniel Fleetwood. Daniel's wife, Ashley, made the announcement on Facebook. She says to all of her wonderful supporters, friends, family, and awesome strangers, Daniel's final dream was just granted. Today, the wonderful Disney and Lucasfilms made his final dream come true. In the amazing, typical Disney way, they really do make dreams come true. Daniel just finished watching an unedited version of Star Wars The Force Awakens. We would like to thank the awesomely talented J.J. Abrams for calling us yesterday to tell us Daniel was getting his wish granted. We would also like to thank Lynn, Ben, and Anhuak for coming to our home and screening the movie for Daniel. Lastly, I want to thank all the amazing people who helped make this happen. For, thank you beyond words. May the force be with you all. Hashtag force for Daniel. Uh, follows up with, don't expect them to say anything else about the movie much as with the similar Into Darkness situation, they probably had to sign a massive NDA to keep the mystery box intact. Still, it's awesome that the internet was able to get the attention of Disney and Lucasfilm to allow Daniel to see The Force Awakens. Uh, this story was from November 5th, as, of we, as we record today is actually November 10th. And sadly, Daniel did pass away. Um, so, at least... There was one happy camper um, with this with this film, and I I do think that that's a really cool gesture when they go out of their way to do things like that. Last but not least, from me from NewYorkPost.com or NYPost.com, uh, by way of Lindsay Putnam, Robin Williams's will prevents use of outtakes for Aladdin sequel. That's right. There's potentially a whole new world for Aladdin fans, but Robin Williams's will makes uh, I'm sorry, but Robin Williams will make sure it never becomes reality. A former Disney executive revealed that enough of the actor's lines from the original 1991 recording sessions wound up on the cutting room floor for the company to use them and make a fourth installment of the Aladdin franchise according to the Times of London. Unfortunately, Disney had to ditch the plans when they discovered Williams's will prevents them from using his name, tape performances, or voice recordings for 25 years 
after his death. Quote, when he was on form, the hyperactive motor mouth we love from Good Morning Vietnam and Mrs. Doubtfire was making 30 jokes a minute, the unnamed executive adds. Um, I, You know, they say that uh, it's usually to protect uh, the inheritors of the estate from incurring additional uh, taxes and stuff. But I don't know. I, I think this is good. Because while I don't think Disney would have gone out of their way necessary to, quote, cash in on Robin Williams' death, I do think that they probably would have waited another two or three years and then, you know, honored Robin Williams with all this unused footage. And I, and I think this is good. It, it lets the Aladdin series stand on its own, and I'm down with that. Uh, and that is my news. Tim, did you have anything that you wanted to uh, add to either one of those stories before you close out the news? We already have two Aladdin sequels. We don't, I mean, there doesn't need to be... And an, an Aladdin TV series. And an Aladdin TV series. But Robin Williams only did the voice for the first and the third, right? What was it, Aladdin and the Prince yes. of the Forty Thieves? Uh, Dan Castellaneta, poor guy. Uh <laughs> oh, he did Return to Jafar, or Return of Jafar. Well, yeah, but he had also... Uh, Aladdin and the King of Thieves was the third and final movie, and he had already recorded all the dialogue. Really? Oh, I didn't know and that. And then they, they were able to land Robin Williams again, and they just scrapped it, and <laughs> it just got rid of it all. So, Well, Disney is known for doing that. I mean, they still do that, yeah. like with The Good Dinosaur, that's going to be coming out this month. They uh, they had I think John Lithgow was like they completely scrapped the entire voice cast. They had to hire a new kid to play the younger kid, and they had some big names a part of the cast. And they just had a they just completely revamped the entire movie. They got rid of the director, brought in a new director. They changed the story up. Uh, but apparently that's what happened with Toy Story two and a couple other movies. Or Finding Nemo, I, I forget exactly. But yeah, Disney's known for doing that, and I guess it it kind of works. Maybe it wasn't sappy enough. They just wanted to make it more sappier. All right, so I'm going to finish up with a couple pieces of news. First up, I don't know about you guys, but I thoroughly enjoyed David Fincher's Girl with the Dragon Tattoo remake that Sony made uh, back in 2011. So a few years ago is when it came out. And a lot of us have been waiting eagerly for the follow-up, which I guess would have been the girl who played with fire in the third book or movie would have been Girl Kicked the Hornet's Nest. You know, and so, like, by now we should have had all three movies. But people didn't want to come back. David Fincher wanted to do something else. Daniel Craig wanted more money. And poor Rooney Mara, I think she was just kind of hanging out, you know, ready to go whenever it was ready to go. And nothing, nobody could really reach an agreement. Well, as you know, a new Girl with the Dragon Tattoo book came out entitled The Girl in the Spider's Web. And apparently, this is going to be the follow-up film. That is right. This is via thehollywoodreporter.com. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo follow-up in works with Stephen Knight in Talks to Adapt. This is written by Tatiana Siegel. 
And it says this, sources say that neither Rooney Mara, who nabbed a Best Actress Oscar nomination for Dragon Tattoo, nor Daniel Craig will be back. And the studio sees the new book as an opportunity to start the franchise over. Elizabeth Salander will hack again on the big screen, but not in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo sequel, The Girl Who Played with Fire. Instead, Sony is putting its focus on book number four in the Millennium series, The Girl in the Spider's Web, the first book famously not written by creator Stig Larsson. The studio is in early talks with Stephen Knight to adapt the novel, which became an international bestseller after, after it was published in September. Two things I want to mention before I continue. Stephen Knight wrote the movie Burnt, which hasn't been getting great reviews, nor I think it... It's already come out? I, I don't know. It, it's not... It, it hasn't been... People aren't looking at it too favorably. Also, the movie, the book, Girl in the Spider's Web, only is a bestseller, an international bestseller, because the book is based off of Stig Larsson's notes. And so people thought, well, maybe he either wrote... Or, and I think maybe even a lot of people didn't even realize that he didn't even write the book, that... Somebody else did. His publisher or something wrote the book. But anyways, I digress. And to continue, ditto for Dragon Tattoo director David Fincher, who is not expected to return to Salander Universe. But Dragon Tattoo producer Scott Rudin is returning to produce alongside Amy Pascal, who negotiated the rights in her exit package from the studio. And yada yada, yada yada, though 2011's Tattoo made $233 million worldwide, the film was deemed too expensive for a hard R film thanks to a $90 million budget. The studio has options on Craig for two sequels, but the actor was said to want a pay raise, making his return impossible given the studio's mandate to make Spider's Web at a much lower budget. Uh, and the article goes on from there. It's very interesting. I think they should just stop. David Fincher's remake of Dragon Tattoo, it leaves it open for a sequel, but it's definitely an, an ominous ending enough to where it could still hold, you know, it could still be a sole singular movie, you know, that doesn't need to have anything else coming after it. I think right now, it, to me, it just feels too much like a cash grab. Um, you're going to have to bring in two of the main, uh, or you're going to have to bring in two totally different people to take on the roles that two other people have actually played. And I'm not just talking about Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara, but then you have the two actors, the, the actor and actress who played the original characters in the original film, the original Swedish film. So are they going to cast people that resemble Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara? Are those people going to try to act the way of Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara to keep the same kind of spirit of David Fincher's film going? I don't know. I just think that they should just stop. You know, it's not boding well. It's not looking up. I think the signs are are, are plain. Just stop. Uh, I'm going to jump right into this next one here. And then, Matt, if you have any questions, do chime in. Or comments, I guess. From Variety.com, box office, Spectre needs to make $650 million to break even. This is written by Brent Lang. Uh, this is something else that I also find interesting. The amount of money that goes into making movies isn't just the budget of production. You also have to look at the marketing. You have to look at touring the film and opening it uh, in, in the different 
territories or markets all over the world, and that, believe it or not, costs money. Spectre is one of the most expensive movies ever made, which is kind of amazing, because if you've seen the movie, it kind of doesn't feel like it. Anyways, and while the 24th film in the James Bond series is off to a sizzling start in parts of Europe, it needs to be a massive box office hit in order to turn a profit. With a price tag of $250 million, plus more than $100 million of marketing promotional costs, industry executives predict that the picture will have to make $650 million to break even. That's because Spectre's backers, a group that includes MGM and Eon Productions, will have to split revenues with exhibitors. Fewer than 90 films have ever achieved that gross globally, and only one other Bond film, Skyfall, has ever surpassed that mark. Of course, there are other ancillary sources of income, including television deals and home entertainment sales, that would cushion the blow should Spectre fall short of that lofty figure. As it stands, most analysts predict that Spectre will post-robust numbers when it debuts in roughly 3,972 domestic locations and over 60 foreign markets this week, it is expected to do 80 million stateside and top the box office. Sony, which is distributing the film, is being more conservative and pegging the figure at the mid-$60 million range. That would likely fall short of the $88.4 million debut of the previous film in the series, Skyfall, However, that picture was the only new wide release during its first weekend in theaters. Spectre faces intense competition from Fox's The Peanuts movie, uh, the adaption of, yeah, you all know about that. Uh, I'll just end all quotes there. Because this, for one thing, this article came out November 4th. So it's about, while we're recording, six days old. Spectre made 70-ish million dollars. So... What Sony predicted, kind of right on target, but it did not make the $88.4 million goal that Skyfall made. And I don't think it's going to break even, and this is why. With Skyfall, Skyfall was a really good movie. Um, Even if you didn't think it was a really good movie, I'm sure you thought it was still a good movie, an entertaining movie, a movie that you might recommend to somebody else who either A, likes action, B, likes good movies, or C, has nothing else to do and doesn't mind spending six, seven, eight bucks at the movie theater. Spectre is not that type of movie. It is long, and the movie feels long. There's nothing really fun about it. And I mean, it's not a movie that you would go to your buddy and recommend him to see and take his whole family to go see it. Skyfall was one of those movies, I think, and that's why... It had replay value. You had people that would go see it on Saturday. You had people that would go back and see it on Sunday and then maybe even go see it during the week or the next weekend. And on top of that, you have people that would buy the Blu-ray when the the movie came out. Again, I don't think Spectre is going to do that well. We will see. Matt, do you have any comments about either of these? Girl with the Dragon Tattoo follow-up or the Spectre box office? Do you think Spectre will meet its box office goal? Um, well, to address the first story first, <laughs> um, we, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. They need to drop that shit. This is stupid. Don't 
Gold Dragon Tattoo didn't do well stateside or as well as they wanted or whatever with the remake. And um, the existing trilogy is already out there and it's fine as it is. Uh, they, yeah. And they're going to recast it. They're, I mean, oh, just leave it alone. Leave it alone. And to answer you on Skyfall, I'm sorry, not Skyfall, but Spectre, I agree. It is not going to make it. It's not going to make it. They, for reasons we'll explain later, I'll go into greater detail later. It's not going to make it. There you have um, it. There you go. And uh, you had mentioned in our pre-show a little bit about Shia LaBeouf screening all of his movies. Oh, you want me to go ahead and talk about that? I can talk about that. Well, I, I mean, he's doing a thing uh, at the at a theater in NYC. It's going on right now, and it's free. So if you're in NYC on Saturday when it's over and you hear this, <laughs> doesn't even matter. But I went ahead and checked out that website. Uh huh. Oh, because you, you can mute. watch him online too. Yeah, I, I watched him. It's just the camera sitting in front of him while he's sitting in a theater watching the film. You can't hear anything because of copyright infringement. They can't run the audio. And clearly they can't show anything for similar reasons. So it's just the camera on him watching the movie. Watching his movies. It's stupid. Once again. Shia LaBeouf. Anyway, alright, so that's going to be the news. And now it is time for the ultimate letdown. Ultimate Because of the way that the ultimate letdown is going to work this time, we're going to let Tim start, and then I'm going to jump in because it will transition us well into the movies. So go ahead, Tim. What is your ultimate letdown this time? God damn it! I I, I just have Shia LaBeouf just staring at me. I need a <laughs> <laughs> and like judging me with his with his eyes. With his hoodie, in his yeah, I kind of wonder if there's like headphones in there, and he's like jamming out to Rush or something. Who knows? Or maybe not Rush, Probably but jamming out to the fucking Even Stevens song. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so my movie, my ultimate letdown this week, uh, to keep with the James Bond theme, Quantum of Solace is my ultimate letdown. Quantum of Solace came out in two thousand and eight, November fourteenth of two thousand eight, and it was directed by Mark Forster. First off, I just want to say something uh, I wasn't intending to say, but on top of looking forward to seeing Quantum of Solace after the success of, of, of Casino Royale, I was very intrigued by Mark Forster because Mark Forster directed the film Finding Neverland. And at the time, I, well, I mean, I still do love it. I loved Finding Neverland. He also did Monsters Ball. But Finding Neverland was a movie that just always stuck with me. I thought it was one of Johnny Depp's best performances. And it was one of the best films uh, I have seen at that time. Or one of my favorite films I have seen at that time. So I was really excited to see what Mark Forster had to bring to the table. But I will continue with the you know what I was planning on saying. Quantum of Solace had the unfortunate task of living up to the success of the previous Bond film, Casino Royale, which came out in 2006 to rave reviews. 
People loved Casino Royale for various reasons. You have the director of GoldenEye, Martin Campbell, returning to the franchise, uh, Daniel Craig as the new Bond, and the film itself acted as a much-needed reboot in hopes to disassociate itself from the way-over-the-top caricature of the franchise, which would be Die Another Day. Casino Royale brought fleshed-out characters and good storytelling to the forefront. Despite my personal uneasiness with Daniel Craig as 007, I still appreciated what the movie was, which is a very good movie. By the end of the film, you're left with memories of Eva Green's sexy Bond girl, Vesper Lind, Mads Mikkelsen's excellent Bond villain, Le Sharif, and that refreshing taste in your mouth of wanting more Bond. And in 2008, we got Quantum of Solace in which 20% of it actually felt like a Bond flick, while 80% of it felt like a frantic Jason Bourne knockoff, chock full of annoying shaky cam fast action and an abundance of unnecessary roughness, which is exactly what the Bond films are not about. Basically, it all amounts to one huge disappointment. You can argue that the Roger Moore films are more over-the-top and violent than the Sean Connery Bond films. Same goes with comparing the Timothy Dalton Bond films to the Roger Moore Bond films and the Brosnan films to the Dalton films, but the spirit of Bond can still be found within them. It's just, with each recast, brings an updated model. Quantum of Solace fails at being a Bond film, but it succeeds at being nothing more than a dizzying continuation of Casino Royale. Now, I recently watched Quantum. Last time I was in Houston, I I caught it on TV. So a couple months ago. And I know I've rewatched Die Another Day, The World Is Not Enough, Tomorrow Never Dies, and Goldeneye within the past year, year or two or so. So I am obviously absolutely comfortable in saying that every Pierce Brosnan film, every Pierce Brosnan Bond film, I should say, is significantly more enjoyable than Quantum of Solace. Because they, though one or two of the Brosnan Bond films aren't particularly good movies, they at least have a sense of fun and style, and all the while not taking itself too seriously until it absolutely has to. The soul of the Bond film is still there. However, the soul of the James Bond films is not in Quantum of Solace. It just felt like a continuation of the Casino Royale storyline. And the movie, the, both movies could not be even more vastly different. So that is why I found Quantum of Solace from 2008 to be an ultimate letdown. Okay. Well, I guess we found Matt's next I'm the only one who liked it because I could not disagree more. <laughs> well, no, a lot, it's, it's funny because I think... <laughs> but that's okay. But that's okay. I mean, it's it's completely subjective. It's your complete, you know, you, you, there, there, there's... Uh, I mean, this is literally one of those times where it is impossible to debate because... All of these choices, whenever we have this particular category, are always going to be 100% subjective. You were looking forward to Quantum of Solace 
for whatever reasons that made you excited to see it. And it did not meet your expectations. Right. And it, and and, although it kind of hurts my heart a little bit that Pierce Brosnan windsurfing over icebergs, CGI crap is somehow better than quantum of souls. That hurts my heart a little bit. Well, to, okay, to be fair, it's, I did say... That somehow has the soul of James No, Bond. no, no, I did say that they're not particularly, like, well, I mean, most, I mean, I, I think two or three but of them are It's still young. better than Quantum of Solace. Die that's, Another Day. That's well, the part that hurts it my totally, heart. It feels more like a Bond movie than Quantum of Solace. For sure it does. I'm not saying it's a great, no. it's a good movie, but I still think no, it's again, a better again, movie. Again, like, that's why I said, this is one of those things, like, it's literally impossible to debate. Until because, now. No, no, I, I'm not. No, I, I truly, I'm truly. I mean, that's the beauty of. I'm the only one who liked it. It's the beauty of. I'm the only one who hated it. That's the beauty of Ultimate Letdown. It is 100% subjective. So, anyways, but to continue on with the theme, uh, Spectre. Yeah, it's going to lead right into the movies. My Ultimate Letdown is Spectre. I am a super huge uh, James Bond fan have been ever since I first watched Dr. No when I was, I want to say, nine years old. And I just, I cannot fathom a world without James Bond. And while there are certainly highs and lows throughout 25 films, the 25th film being the one that is uh, technically is a James Bond film, but it's not officially canon due to some licensing loophole that happened and we get never say never again. But the reason why I, I was so disappointed with Spectre was because they took the one thing that destroyed the entire fucking James Bond mythos from Skyfall and doubled down on it and made the worst possible choice in plotline history with Spectre. And that one aspect was, and this is the only thing I'm going to say about this because I'm not going to spoil my entire review. And that aspect was removing the idea that James Bond, that 007, is a figure. It's the myth, the legend that is simply played by the actor filling the role in the universe of James Bond, in the universe of the License to Kill sector. But that it's just that person who has inherited the mantle. They took that away in Skyfall and made James Bond real. He's the real person, and now he's the only James Bond. There, There's no way to do anything but carry out James Bond's story. And instead of just letting that go, Spectre double, just fucking double down, you know, double downs on this shit, or doubles down on it. And the entire movie is based on that last bit of Skyfall that ruined the James Bond mythos. And I was just so completely disappointed. And that's before we get into anything else that's worth critiquing about the film. (laughs) 
So my ultimate letdown <laughs> is Spectre 2015 as James Bond as the 007 franchise goes out with a fucking whimper. So, so that's going to be a, this is a four-star movie for you, right? Oh, oh, yes, yes. It is a point four star movie. Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, it's a point oh four, oh four star. No, okay. All right. But in all seriousness, that is the end of the ultimate letdown. Um, next week, what are we doing? We don't know. Uh, it's, we, you we, know what? It's Fuck surprise. it. It's going to be a surprise. Because I don't know, I don't want to try and what what was you, what what was your suggestion? Uh, three squared. What what do you want to do with three squared on? Don't know. Surprise. Okay, so it's going to be a three squared next week, but it's going to be a surprise three squared. We're Shit. on it Send tonight. us an email. We are on you know, it. Send us an email to the show at slscast.com or hit us up on Twitter at the slscast. Hit me, Matt Nitwit one two three four five. On Twitter, hit up Tim if you want to track him down on Twitter and send us some suggestions. Wait, is the show over? There we go. Is that no, no, just just <laughs> now while we're at the, you know so that so that maybe you will be able to take part in the surprise. And with that, we now come to the movies. <laughs> And this week's movies are, of course, Spectre, Bone Tomahawk, and Mississippi Grind. So carrying over from our ultimate letdown, we're going to go ahead and start with Spectre. The 2015 James Bond film and 24th officially canonized James Bond film that uh, is directed by Sam Mendes and stars Daniel Craig, Christoph Waltz, Leia Sadeau, Ben Wishaw, Naomi Harris, Dave Bautista, Monica Bellucci, and Ralph Fiennes. Um, this movie pretty much picks up right where Skyfall le- left off because just like what they did with um, Quantum of Solace, basically extending the story of Casino Royale, they've done similarly here where it is extending the story from Skyfall, even though there really wasn't a need to do that. And we start off in kind of a lackluster opening. I was really disappointed with the lackluster opening here. And I get that there was... um, But every critique I've read, like one of the positive things, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, this Mm -hmm. movie's disappointing. But the opening was dazzling. It was, really? The opening, no, I mean, the opening was good. And it definitely seemed to have, it seemed to have a great feel for the classic Bond things. And I think that's what they were trying to do here. I think in the way of trying to sign off, they were definitely trying to pay homage to the previous franchise, to the previous entries in the franchise. And by doing certain things that were made famous by previous bonds and that's cool and i and i definitely got the feel that while of course there's cgi involved um there were also some pretty cool practical effects in play for the opening yeah like but, the, the 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 continuous shot was what i really liked sure the helicopters sure. 
times. The helicopter, I really loved the close-ups where it looked like they were on a green screen from the fucking 80s, but whatever. <laughs> retro, Again, man. Throwback. It's retro. an homage. They're paying homage. It's an homage or whatever you want to call it to the classic Bonds. And it really just picks up from there. So the story picks up, and now Bond is uh, – he, he's gotten a, a video communique from the previous M, uh, Ju- uh, Judy Dench. And he's keeping it a secret, but he's trying to take out this thing. And, of course, it uncovers the secret underground criminal empire that is Spectre. And everybody from Casino Royale through now has all had a part in it. Because it all leads up to this. Because it's all been a fucking Saw franchise dressed up like James Bond. And it's all got to work together. And we now have Daniel Craig or whatever, James Bond, searching after this hidden nemesis who supposedly had died. And, of course, the trailer gives it away. It's Christoph Waltz. But I'm not going to, I'm not going to spoil the actual relationship. But basically, uh, you know, we've got James Bond trying to track down Christoph Waltz as the head of this criminal empire, and in the process, finds out all that there is to find out about the wonders that is James Bond, the man, not the myth anymore, not the agent that was simply 007 codenamed James Bond that's lived through 23 other fucking movies, but whatever. And then he goes on his wonderful misadventures, globetrotting, and literally seducing a apparently non-loved Monica Bellucci, who is a widow for all of like 10 minutes and just decides to fuck the fuck out of goddamn Daniel Craig. I mean, he's a good-looking cat. And if I could look that good, period, forget when I'm that age, if I could just look that good, period, I would certainly want to fuck the hell out of Monica Bellucci too. The problem here is, is that... They've spent so much time coming out of uh, Casino Royale developing this whole new 21st century Bond. And to just throw it all away to make it look like you're Roger Moore and fucking Octopussy, it, it's, it doesn't work. It's chuckle-worthy. It was, I chuckled at it because it was kind of funny, but it totally took me out of the movie and made it impossible to take seriously. And then, so so when, you know, hitting up the hot chick your age, in your age bracket, doesn't, or, or works and has been successful, but now it's time to move on, we should totally hit up the chicks who are half your age. Because that's better, right? Um, and then, and, and it's just complete globetrotting, Stupid stuff, uh, you know, big brother out to get you. We've got uh, a secondary bad guy who is um, uh, played by Andrew Scott, of course. And, and of course, Andrew Scott is my wonderful Moriarty from the Sherlock series. And which apparently that's just him because in every movie that he is in... He he yeah. he sounds the exact same. Like there's no. There's I will no say this though. It, the sad part was he was the most convincing character in the entire film. <laughs> I mean, regardless of the fact that maybe he wasn't acting all that much, 
he was to me the most convincing character in the whole film. <laughs> I just, um, I just, I could not buy into everything because of the ridiculous way that they chose to address the the entire, as far as I'm concerned, close out the the time the the, the kissing goodbye, right? The fond farewell of James Bond. Because they have literally painted themselves into a corner with closing it out. I assume because that Sony has their hand in this, they're just going to wait five and a half years and try and fucking reboot it. Spider-Man what? Well, Sony isn't going to have... I mean, this is the last James Bond movie that, they're, that they had their hand in. Now, it's probably going to end up going to Fox or Warner Brothers or something. Yeah, well, whatever. Um... <laughs> Well, maybe that was the point then. Sony said, ha, here's what we'll do. We'll fuck it up so bad nobody's going to be able to touch it. We're going to make this thing look like a monkey fucking a football. Anyway. (laughs) So you then carry this thing off until you get, of course, to the grand finale out in the middle of fucking nowhere. Where somehow, if you just manage to shoot a propane gas valve correctly... Um, with the man who never misses and i mean i understand great amazing accuracy and that's kind of been like one of the hallmarks of daniel craig's take on james bond he is like retarded fucking accurate i swear it's like he's channeling his inner fucking rain man when he shoots a gun but it 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 sets off an explosion and a chain reaction that blows up the whole compound, right? Because, you know, it's the finale, right? And, and everything's got to be blown up. The thing is, is that could it have been any more symmetrical? It was like the perfect fucking explosion as they walk away. It's the stupidest fucking... I mean, it's like, how the fuck? Really? Are we doing this now? Fuck this movie. And yet, it's not completely terrible, um, where you have the chuckle-worthy moments and you get to kind of see Daniel Craig hamming it up a little bit, it's still entertaining. There's still some really cool action. Um, I enjoyed the fact that Dave Bautista only has one line in the entire movie. Made it a lot more fun. I like the throwback aspects of it in terms of the idea but the implementation of the throwback aspects were just not done right. Cinematography is great. A lot of the special effects, again, they there was not a super heavy rely, uh, reliance on CGI, uh, which is great. However, there is still CGI, and it's really fucking obvious when you have great-looking flames that turn into the shittiest-looking smoke you've ever seen. I, it's like, how do you get half of it right? How do you get it so right and then so wrong? Like two seconds later, I don't know. The movie is, um, in in terms of writing, completely all over the place. The story was the most ridiculous fabrication I've ever seen. The homages, uh, while cute, were ineffective. But, I mean, it's still not the worst movie out there i was so looking forward to seeing this and being able to say goodbye and at least maybe somehow hope that they would do such a fantastic job with this send-off that they could wrangle that last 25th movie out of it somehow some way but no they just decided to have the monkey fuck the football 
I will go ahead and be nice and give this two and a half because despite the fact that it's just nowhere near and I was so ultimately disappointed, there are good technical aspects to the film and despite its overly long nature, there are still some entertaining scenes, uh, some interesting characters uh, and some good Bond-esque aspects to it as well. I didn't get that at all from your <laughs> two and a, two um, two and a half. That's like saying yeah. fuck Disney. It's okay. Fuck it. Fuck it. Well, would you ever go back? Yeah, I'd go back. No, no, I'm not gonna go back. But I can at least give it the proper merits um, that that are ascribed to it that I have already done. Well, on a plus, so. you like the cinematography, and that's Roger Deakins' cinematography, the guy who did. Sicario stuff so there you go see so yeah so I'm willing to I'm willing to at least be generous and meet it halfway but man was I disappointed and perhaps maybe as Tim likes to say I might be compelled to revisit this in the future and perhaps be over my disappointment and be able to give it a little bit of a higher rating and that's kind of what this is like banking on future generosity that gets it to two and a half because I even, even with this was still leaning towards a two, but there are some redeemable aspects, but on the whole, it just barely escapes it. Okay. 2.5. Go ahead, Tim. Last week, it was either last week or the week before uh, Matt, you and I were talking and I said something along the lines of, I don't know how I feel about Spectre. I didn't go into detail why I said that. I just I just said that I don't think it's going to be as good as what the, you know, as what it's being made out to be. And boy was I right. And what turned me off, or I should say what got me interested was the 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 first teaser trailer where you hear Christoph Waltz's narration and then you kind of see his character and then there's that quietness and there's the gunshot and the glass and it's specter and it's very ominous and cool and then you have the first full-length trailer which is kind of neat you really don't know exactly what the movie is about because they're trying to keep some of it a little bit under wraps i was hooked by that time you know it's like they should have stopped there they should have released nothing else and i would have been super jazzed to go and see this movie and then they decided to release the poster of the movie the posters for this movie are god-awful. James Bond or Daniel Craig standing in front of the Dia, uh, the Day of the Dead skeleton costume that he was in at the beginning of the movie. Poorly done poster work. Uh, the very first one of him just standing there in his earthy tone colored sweater and pants looked fine. But it, it just got duller and duller. And that also translated into the... Uh, the other trailers that they released and, and tr other TV spots. And they decided to release a TV... I can't remember if it was a trailer or a TV spot or something. Or an extended TV spot. But it was like their action trailer where they were tr going to show you the action in the movie. And that's what... That was the final nail in the coffin. Which started to make me question things. Because as what I mentioned with Quantum of Solace, Quantum of Solace why I didn't like it and why to me that one didn't feel like a Bond film was because the action was way over the top and it was, it didn't feel, it didn't fit the, the Bond, uh, the James Bond style, I should say. 
And based on what I saw, it definitely did not fit James Bond's style, especially on GoldenEye standards as well. It was just way too ridiculous. You know, James Bond blowing up a building and the building falls and then the, the building that the roof is on top of crumbles underneath them. Well, that reminds me of a scene from Quantum of Solace where him and this guy fall through a roof and... Uh, he's swinging on this rope thing and he pulls his gun out and shoots the guy. I, I mean, I'm not explaining that or describing that well at all. But those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, Quantum of Solace. Um, the first time I saw that, I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's going to play really well in the movie. It just put a sour taste in my mouth. And for some reason, that part of Spectre in that trailer, or in the trailer for Spectre, just... It was a throwback to that moment in the Quantum of Solace trailer. That was my mentality before going in to see this movie. That is what sealed the deal. And I was right. It has dumb action, over-the-top action, action that really didn't require any effort whatsoever. You have a boring car chase. You have a boring helicopter chase. You have boring shootouts. There's no pizzazz. There's no fun. And there is no style. Which brings me to one of the more major critiques uh, that I heard about this film was that people were bitching about how that it was replicating the Roger Moore James Bond movies. You know, that apparently people hated what people hated about the James Bond movies was these Roger Moore movies, which I think is bullshit because I can't tell you how many people I've heard say that, oh, I love Man with the Golden Gun. And it's like, I think Man with the Golden Gun's a good James Bond movie. I mean, just all of a sudden now people are saying that the Roger Moore movies are absolute shit. But they're not. And this movie wasn't a Roger Moore style movie. I can see that was, in, in a way, it was trying to replicate it or it might have was trying to go towards the Roger Moore kind of James Bond movies with the more over-the-top action, the sexiness, the misogynist qualities, uh, as well as the zany one-liners that Roger Moore's Bond, the zingers he had. But the problem with Spectre is that if that's what they were trying to replicate, they didn't execute that well. The jokes were bad. The misogyny, the uh, the misogynistic qualities is super creepy. And a lot of that is because Daniel Craig's Bond is way too stern and does not have much of a personality. And all of a sudden, he now has a personality. In Skyfall, they were trying to bring out that personality, that classic James Bond personality, that... I always loved and I kind of missed from James Bond that I really wanted. I thought personally, I thought Pierce Brosnan had a really good mix of tongue in cheek quip about him as well as a good action stud muffin, if I may say so. Yeah, Daniel Craig's a good looking guy, but a personality he is not known for whatsoever. And so all of a sudden he's now in a movie where he does have a personality. It just didn't feel comfortable. He didn't look comfortable, especially. I also thought that Christoph Waltz and Leia Sado were underused. Batista's character of whatever his name was was way, 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 way too much of a throwback. On top of that, like throwback as in like the character of Jaws, you know, like we know Jaws because well, now he was in a couple movies, a couple Bond movies, but we knew him as Jaws because of his metal teeth. He can bite things, and throughout the movies that he was in, or featured in, 
you saw him utilizing his 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 signature quality or aspect about him, his teeth. You only see Batista's unique element once, like him actually use it once that I can remember. Uh, and it's his metal fingertips, and it just seemed like they really, if they were trying to play up the homages, that is something that they really needed to go for. And that's the issue is that, yeah, on the surface, you can tell they were doing some throwback stuff, but it was executed poorly. I don't know if that was Sam Mendez or the producers or what, but unfortunately, Sam Mendez is going to have to take the fault. And that is ultimately disappointing after the, the great success he had with Skyfall. You know, that was his doing of making it so good. So I just don't understand what the fuck happened here. On top of all that, the villain's evil plan feels completely forced when it's finally revealed. It's like a shoe-in, especially. Like, all of a sudden, all four of the Daniel Craig Bond movies are linked. And not just the mention every once in a while of Best Berlin, Eva Green's character from Casino Royale, and how, you know, that was, I guess, James Bond's first crazy love interest, and, you know, she died, and that always kind of fucked with his character a bit. I can, I can see that carrying over, but no, everything ties together, and it feels so forced, and it all happens like an hour and a half into Spectre. It's just ridiculous, because you know it's going to happen, because given the title of it being Spectre, you already know what it was going to pertain to. Let's see. Yeah, forced backstory that takes the... Fun. Oh yeah, the, the backstory, the forced backstory, also takes the fun out of not just Bond, uh, but also the villain and the story, the James Bond story as a whole. So, yeah, it's it's a movie that has a nice stride, but it keeps stubbing its toe every other step. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. However, it is every other step that it stubs its toe. So I'm gonna land on two point seven five out of five for Spectre. All right, where would you like to go from here, sir? Mississippi Grind. All right, Mississippi Grind. This is a 2015 American dramedy. Uh, It's written by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck and is also directed by Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck. Stars Ryan Reynolds, Ben Mendelsohn, Sienna Miller, Annalie Tipton, and Alfre Woodard. Uh, follows the story of a gambler, uh, Jerry, played by Ben Mendelsohn, who is definitely on a losing streak, uh, not just on gambling, but in life. And he comes across a Younger gambler, uh, Curtis, played by Ryan Reynolds, who seems to be able to act as a lucky charm. And they go on a Rain Man-esque tour of the Mississippi River to hit up the uh, this, this really cool poker game where you buy in for like $25,000, kind of like Maverick with Mel Gibson. But whatever. Um, this movie definitely has a lot of things going for it. It, I mean, it's, it's definitely got, it's definitely got kind of an art house feel in terms of giving you vibes of, uh, 
people who are searching for meaning in their life. These are not one-dimensional characters despite their flaws and the way that they're presented, especially when it comes uh, to the wonder of Jerry. He is not just this degenerate gambler. He is actually a person. Uh, Curtis is not just some kind of la-di-da floaty thing that's used as a plot device to actually make things go. The movie does have heart. It does actually display good characterizations. And I think that the writing, though, really only falters in at the end. I wasn't really digging the way that the film comes to a close. But that's not necessarily enough to hold it against the entire movie. Um... It's got a little bit of pacing issues, but nothing too drastic. I really enjoyed the fact that this kind of looked like it was going to be, uh, like I said, one-dimensional. But it turned out that there were layers to the characters. And I give, and I have, you have to give kudos to uh, Anna Bowden and Ryan Fleck for that. Because not only were they able to write convincingly, but they were able to get those characterizations to match up out of the performances from Ryan Reynolds and Ben Mendelsohn. So at the end of the day... Um, not the strongest movie in the world, but definitely very decent. I give this one 3.75. I like this one a lot. Uh, it's a 4.25 rating for me. Mississippi Grind could have gone down so many different avenues. It could have taken so many different paths. It could have been super depressing. It could have been dull. It could have been boring. It could have been one of those movies where... Words are only spoken for about 30% of the movie's runtime, while the rest of it is of beautiful scenery and folks looking at one one another in gratuitous nudity. But the one avenue that they chose, given its subject matter of addiction, is actually rather entertaining, and it gives you clear insight into something as serious as addiction. Like, I thought it was interesting because you actually got an idea of how the process of addiction works. And what's also beautiful about this movie is that the film could have been about any form of addiction and it still would have worked. Sex addiction, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, I mean, whatever addiction, just so happens this one is about gambling and folks who cannot spend or save their money properly. And just the downfall. And I think another thing that's interesting is that, yes, the movie is a road movie, but I really liked how the movie didn't start at point A in the character's downfall and go through all those uh, motions that we've seen in all these other movies. The movie starts kind of at the end, and it retraces the characters. The the characters are mysterious. You think you're, you're about to watch something kind of... Tarantino-y and fun and entertaining, but really it these characters start to unravel and their dimensions start to peel off and flake off one by one, and you really get to see exactly how these characters are at fault when it comes to their own lives and the struggles that they have to deal with. I again I give this one 4.25 out of five. I recommend it, especially if you are a Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds, Ryan, yeah, Ryan Reynolds fan, uh, but Ben Mendelsohn 
you've seen the guy in a lot of different movies. He's a great actor. And honestly, I think he's the one that steals the show when it comes to this movie. And I think should be nominated for something. I haven't seen every movie yet of, of this year, but he's that good. 4.25 out of 5. Right on. All right. Well, then that's going to leave us with Bone Tomahawk. 2015 American Western film. It, uh, but it also maintains horror elements. Uh, it is directed by S. Craig Zoller and written by S. Craig Zoller. Film stars Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, Richard Jenkins, Lily Simmons, David Arquette, Sid Haig, and Sean Young. Uh, film takes place in uh, basically very late 1800s, possibly early 1900s. And you've got two guys who are basically just killing people um, for their... Um, not for sport necessarily, but they're basically just robbing them and killing them for whatever items they can get off of them. Uh, they inadvertently, uh, well, I can't, let me rephrase that. After a successful heist, as it were, one of them ends up dead. And one of them, we don't know. Uh, we then cut to another town where we have Sheriff Franklin Hunt, who's played by Kurt Russell. Um, he's told that he spotted a drifter, and it turns out that uh, the 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 remaining bandit from the beginning of the movie is the drifter. Uh, some shenanigans ensue, as they say, and the evil that attacked our two men from the beginning seem to be following our survivor. The survivor is named Purvis. Uh, People go missing and then they learn through a professor of the troglodytes, a hidden group of, of evil native Americans disowned by all tribes who dwell in the caves and are evil, evil cannibals. So, naturally, we got to go on a rescue mission. That's pretty much the heart and soul of the film there, uh, in terms of just a plot summary. Now, what what I kind of felt this movie was, I was afraid of this movie being, rather, was kind of like Wild Wild West meets The Descent. But it's not. It's not. It is very, very cleverly done in that... All of the different characters are human, are flawed, but all of them, every single one of them, have some kind of redeeming quality. And even when it's just grudgingly so, as in the case with, um, oh, right, it's Matthew Fox plays him, right? It's uh, John Bruder. He is, oh my God. Homeboy is definitely not a nice guy. But Matthew Fox definitely plays him very, very well. Um, Kurt Russell gives a fantastic performance as well. And, of course, Patrick Wilson is a um, definitely a, an actor that I like. Uh, he just brings a certain je ne sais quoi to his roles. And... I, I dig him. But 
where the movie actually shines is in its use of violence. Not since Tarantino have I really seen violence used as such an effective cinematic tool. It's not a plot device. They use it as a cinematic tool because this is what ratchets up the horror elements. It's not just about, ooh, dark, scary cave and people coming and boogeyman coming to get you. It's what, it's the threat of what they're willing to do. It's the, it's the brutality that was the West during this period as it tried to evolve into a more civil society. It's what people are willing to do to one another out of hate and misunderstanding. And yet at the same time, it's scary as fuck to watch what happens when that violence is used in its full form. Biggest downside to this film is that I really felt that they just tried too hard to make to, to make every one of the major protagonists somehow secretly noble. Now, I don't mind minor redeeming features, even, like I said, when grudgingly so, because it's it gives layers to the character that you wouldn't otherwise appreciate or would just pass off as cliched. But what they do is it, they just try too hard to make to make everybody who has something critical to do with the plot somehow noble in some way, shape, or form to lead to a... I'm going to use the term happy ending loosely here. And because of that, I'm knocking it down to 4.25. This movie is still really, really good, and I would definitely recommend it, especially if you are a Kurt Russell fan like I am, especially if you're a fan of Westerns, or if you like genre mashups. Very well done, excellently executed in those departments on technical levels like cinematography and score. But I just really didn't like that they were trying to, it felt forced to me that the redemptive qualities as it were. So 4.25, definitely check it out. Bring us home, Tim. Well, we're flip-flopped with this rating. You 4.25, I 3.75. Still a really good movie. It's written and directed by S. Craig Zoller. I think that's how you pronounce his last name, Zoller, Z-A-H-L-E-R. This is his first movie that he's directed. He wrote the movie as well, but he's actually an author, and that is why Kurt Russell wanted to do this movie, because apparently Kurt Russell is a fan of S. Craig Zoller's work. The movie plays out, and I guess this could be attributed to that, the, the movie plays out exactly like how a novel would. It's very detailed. Uh, the action is very detailed. It's very descriptive. And at times, it's a little too detailed, especially during the first act. It's one of those slow-burning type of movies on top of that, it's also a Western. There's not, I don't want to say there's action in it per se, but the characters and the dialogue is what really moves the film forward. I mean, yeah, there's some pretty scenery, but it's not all about the scenery. It's about the action within the story and the characters. And again, I think that was executed very well because of who directed it and what his actual background is in writing books. And I always enjoy watching these kind of movies. 
because it's not flashy. It's not trying to be flashy. It's not trying to be, oh, cool, look at this cool scenery. Look at this cool vista. Just to distract you from the story. And like what Matt was talking about, the violence, how... The viol- how the violence isn't a and the gore isn't a plot device. It's the same with how the movie is shot. The look of the movie is not a plot device. It's the storytelling. The story of the film is told quite well. Though I do think that the movie is a little bit too much of one of those slow-burning movies, especially during the first act of the film. However, that is when you're first starting to get to know these characters, and maybe that would not have been the case. As I guess maybe the final kick would not have been a final kick at the end of the movie if it wasn't for the first act being how it was. Or maybe I didn't care for it too much because uh, of the acting. I thought some of the acting wasn't as strong, mainly by Patrick Wilson and Lily Simmons. I'm not saying that they're bad actors. I love Patrick Wilson, and I know he he is a fantastic actor. Due to how true to the period the dialogue is, it felt like certain actors couldn't really pull it off in that they weren't comfortable with that type of dialogue. And I thought that came across screen at certain moments blatantly. Mainly during the first act. And so with Lily Simmons, since she's the one that gets kidnapped, I didn't feel for her as much as I should. Uh, So it's a lot of little things kind of like that. The movie is well done. Kurt Russell does an excellent job. Matthew Fox. Richard Jenkins is in it. He plays the old man, which took me a little while to realize that that was actually Richard Richard Jenkins. Yeah, it's it's a well-done movie. You should check it out. Bone Tomahawk. 3.75 3.75 out of 5 for me. Awesome. All right. Well, that is going to leave us with uh, the movies for next week, which is going to be 99 Homes, Mr. Holmes, and Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Uh, and with that, I believe we're at the spiel, are we not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to for our intros and outros has been brought to you by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can also follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at NickTwit12345. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that is your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can also subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. And so until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Matthew Fox, I get to say this. If you look closely at a tree, you'll notice it's knots and dead branches, just like our bodies. What we learn is that beauty and imperfection go together wonderfully. This is Tim saying that this has been one very sexual innuendo-filled episode with our boner tomahawks, our E.T. the extra testicles, uh, sphincter, and Mississippi Grind. Take care, guys, and we'll talk to you again next week.
thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.